2: become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult.
0: Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin.
3: Welcome. I'm so excited to be here with you all today. We're recording live in front of our audience for the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. And our special guest today is entertainment attorney, Philip Rosen. Let me tell you about Philip because he is really impressive and I'm stoked we have him with us here today. Over his more than 20 year legal career, Philip Rosen has practiced entertainment law in the areas of film, television, music, home video, new media, and video games, which my son will love to hear about. In 1980, after receiving a BA in economics from Vassar College and a JD from Stanford Law School, Philip launched his career as an attorney for Polygram's music division, where he negotiated and drafted music publishing agreements and handled copyright matters. He subsequently spent five years at RCA, as a business affairs manager for rca video discs and director of program and talent negotiations for rca video productions working in the arenas of pay cable and syndicated tv entering the la market as vice president of business affairs and legal affairs for new line in 1989 he ascended to senior vice president of business and legal affairs during his seven-year tenure he was responsible for business affairs and legal duties for over 50 motion pictures, including the Nightmare on Elm Street and House Party series, as well as the Jim Carrey comedy The Mask and the Brad Pitt thriller Seven. From 1997 to 1999, he was a partner in charge of the motion picture and television department in the Beverly Hills office of Baker and Homina not say this right, Baker and Hostet, Hostetler? Hostetler. How'd I do? LLP. Rosen currently is principal of Rosen Law Group, representing producers, writers, directors, actors, production companies, and distributors in a transactional capacity. Philip, well, I'm stoked you're here with us.
1: I'm impressed. Wow.
3: Isn't it great to have your own bio read back to you and you're like, I did all that?
1: That's yeah, amazing.
3: <laughs> that's so, so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so you represent a lot of above the line creators and that's primarily... Who my audience is, you know, writers and directors and producers and folks who are working in now everything, right? We're everything. We're so proliferated streaming and TV and cable and all the way through to the traditional world of motion picture and TV all the way through to what's becoming the new world of post pandemic streaming. And one of my first questions for you is since you've been in the space for a really long time, will you talk to us about how you've seen it change? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, uh as you say, there are so many cross currents now going that you really can't it's very hard to specialize, right? Because you if you represent talent, um you need to be able to uh negotiate traditional television deals, but also streaming deals, um and uh games, NFTs, all yeah. this stuff is coming up. So we're we find ourselves constantly being challenged um and having to uh you know, explore new worlds. In terms of how the business has changed, um, the biggest change and the most exciting change is the um, proliferation of content. So, you know, there are so many more um, shows and movies that are being produced right now than ever in history, I'm sure. It's bound to be a bubble. It's bound to pop at some point. There's just too much... Like everybody who's listening to this, I'm sure you have a list of things that you're not getting around to seeing, right? There's so many shows and movies, it's like mind boggling. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so as I said, I would expect that to pop at some point. It doesn't seem sustainable to me, but I may be wrong. But that being said, for the next several years, we don't have to worry about a bubble popping. Why is that? Because everybody is chasing Netflix Right, who's the leader in the field? And in order to keep up, uh Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, all, et cetera, HBO Max, everybody has to spend, you know, if if um if Netflix is spending 17 billion dollars this year on content and Disney Plus wants to chase them, can they spend five billion, what they or whatever they normally spend? No, they've got to spend big. So everybody's spending big and those wars. Uh, the streaming wars don't seem to uh, be, don't seem to be, will probably not abate for uh, no end in sight. Years, so that's the good news. Anybody getting into the space, content is being created at unprecedented unprecedented levels. A great time to be an entertainment attorney. Great time to be a creator, writer, uh, and the rest.
3: That's so cool. Um, and last time I talked to you, you said there's more buyers than ever before.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, used to be, right, there was only the, the, the five studios, right, buying movies. Now you have all the, um, you have everyone competing, all the streamers. Uh, so there's tons of buyers out there, and uh, they're hungry for content. You know, they're, they're buying things, documentaries. Nobody was buying documentaries. There were like one or two documentaries a year that made a blip on the scene, right, That that people were aware of. Fahrenheit. 9/11 or something, you know. Uh, there was a few. Um, uh, An inconvenient truth. Now, Tiger King and on and on and on and on, on we, and on. It's yeah. a golden age of that.
3: documentary filmmakers, too. So,
1: so cool. So the little niches that that were there are now mainstream. So unscripted television documentaries. Uh, everything is just proliferating, all kinds of content. So that's a good news. Animated. Look at animated, how big that is now. Everybody's doing it. It used to be just Disney. came out with a couple movies a year. Now everybody's doing animated because, you know what, kids watch it over and over again. So uh, there's a great, like Trolls, in the middle of the pandemic, did amazing business. Um, uh, so...
3: I think we're all looking in the middle of the pandemic for family stuff. Like I have a nine year old and we're like, what can we all sit down together and watch? We're all at home. And it was always really exciting to find something that we could all see that we, you know, we could all laugh at and, and share.
1: Yeah. Well, I think family fair has proven to be a very lucrative um, uh, market for everybody. So everybody's coming out with uh, things for kids of all ages. Right.
3: so oh, interesting. I want to talk to you, too, about, you know, the motion picture world, because now, you know, pandemic and theatrical and all the crazy windowed releases, you know, and what happened with um, Black Widow. So will you talk a bit about what you're seeing with trends in theatrical and motion picture?
1: Sure. Well, in terms of everybody knows what the theatrical window is historically, right? I don't have to explain that, you know, movie come out theatrically and for the next 90 days, you wouldn't be able to see it in any other format. Right now, um, the pandemic, I mean, these trends were already present before the pandemic started in terms of the shortening of the window. Um, but now the, the pandemic blew it apart. So, um, uh, HBO, uh, uh, you know, for example said that they would release, which is owned by Warner Brothers, they would release their movies simultaneously in theaters and on HBO max. Which is, I think, great for consumers to have that choice, uh, whether it maximizes the revenue, because the platforming is all about maximizing revenue, right? You know, you make the most theatrically, so you want to get that built up, and uh, that also drove uh, revenue down the line. Now they're doing a lot of day and date, and day and date just means simultaneous release in theaters and on their streaming platforms. And so this is really, really new. This is just like the last year or something. So there's still, nothing is settled. Are, you know, after the pandemic, which we're sort of hopefully leaving now, are there going to be more traditional windows for theatrical? Possibly. Nobody knows, but it will certainly be much shorter. For example, James Bond kept getting delayed, 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 delayed because of the pandemic, right? That was the biggest movie to come out uh, during the pandemic. Finally, they scheduled it towards you know uh, three or four months ago. It came out theatrically, right, and uh, <clears throat> did okay. Did pretty good business. Now, <clears throat> I just saw last night that I can watch it for 1995, the James Bond, which is phenomenal, by the way. You got to see any James Bond fans out there? You got to you got to see the No Time to Die. It's terrific. Yeah, it's a big movie. Yeah, I saw it. By the way, uh, I wasn't going to any theaters <clears throat> because of the pandemic, but my friends rented out a theater, which is surprisingly cheap. An IMAX theater, you know, was $199 for the whole theater. No, Uh, oh my God. Many of us went and saw it in in safe conditions, right? And that was a great experience. So anyway, those windows are every which way. So I can't tell you what the trend is because it's, it's currently in flux, but certainly the windows are shorter. If not to simultaneously continued. So they're doing studies right now because it's so new in terms of if that day and date simultaneous release is maximizing revenue or whether they're better off to have uh, a short theatrical window, which probably is only going to be 30 days or 60 days at the most. And the other trend that may be troubling or may not, depending on your perspective, is that I think that theatrical will be reserved for the tentpole movies. Right, that's going to be my if, next
3: question.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to make much sense to do these independent movies, by the way, which are being made by the truckload. Um,
3: At all it, budgets, the indies that you're seeing, or are you seeing erosion in the mid-budget range?
1: Um, you know, I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, sort of non-franchise movies, if you will, the non-Marvel Disney movies, Uh, I think they're being made at all budget levels, all budget levels from super high down to uh, uh, low. Another day
4: is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
3: I mean, that's really interesting. Previous to the pandemic, the number that I saw was that the U.S. and Canada were, were releasing about 800 movies a year. Do you think that we're doing more now than ever because of all the places to release content? Or do you think that we've scaled back on motion pictures? And seems like the thing I've heard is everybody wants a
1: series. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's hard to say because the pandemic slowed production way down. So there's probably going to be less output for the next year, right? Because movies weren't made in the beginning of the pandemic, except for Zoom movies. My my client, the Duplass Brothers, made a couple, a few, several Zoom movies, you know, were just really uh, movies that were able to be make uh, able, able to be made with uh, limited personal contact.
3: Yeah, it's amazing uh, that White Lotus was made during the pandemic. They just were like, we're going to take over the Four Seasons in Maui and just make this series here because they could. It's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, that's true. That was a, it was a great show. It was a great uh, show. Yeah, I, I enjoyed I enjoy that. It was so quirky. It was uh, so quirky. And deep. Yeah, well, uh, is it? I don't know about the deep part. I think debatable. But I mean, we'll, well, with this
3: parasite. We. I mean, look. This is important, and I think it's great for all people to see. Is like now we have the upstairs, downstairs. You know, more. I'm using that English term, right? Of the servant class, who are mostly people of color, who haven't had their stories told in this way. And now, since Parasite, something like White Lotus comes along and really showcases everybody's perspective in a more even way. I thought that that
1: was wonderful. I think think that's fair. The other big one is Squid Game, right? Which is yeah, massive. Netflix's
3: biggest hit ever.
1: And the biggest uh, Holly, uh, Halloween costume was, you know, those tracksuits. I was very resistant to see it because I don't, you know, just hyper-violent. But then I forced myself to see it because it becomes such a, uh, a cultural touchstone. And, oh. And you know, yeah, it's hard to watch, but it was, it gets, it, you know, it pulls you in. Now, in terms of whether it's a deep film and, you know, the uh, significance of the class Differences and all that, uh, you know. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I haven't watched it yet because I can't do a lot of violence. It's like I all I seem to watch at the end of the day are the comedies, but <laughs> that's just me.
1: Get through <laughs> if you can get through watching the violence, <clears throat> which is not especially graphic. Medium, medium graphic. It's mostly people just getting shot and dying. It's not like grossly violent so it is a little bit watchable it'll pull you in
3: (laughs) I always try to see at least the pilot of these things and like you said at the beginning it's on my list in the long list of things that I'm looking at and going I may never watch all this like in my lifetime I don't think I have enough hours (laughs) to see everything in my lifetime however long that ends up being
1: (laughs) I watched that Red notice last night you know with those the rock Gal Gadot
3: it's on my list Bill (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that just opened yesterday.
3: Aladdin.
1: Yeah, I mean the cast is phenomenal. Oh. They're all over the world in glamorous places, but I found it so thin and, in, and so poorly written. They needed you to give it a rewrite, Kaya. They really did. <laughs> That's right, from from your lips. Doesn't to- have the fun factor that you would expect of a you know sort of a, a heist comedy with that cast. It really doesn't deliver. I don't think, but, you know. That's
3: interesting. I mean, we could have these discussions all day long too about, you know, what, what, is, what fails to deliver, what does deliver. I mean, I was looking at the Twitter responses to the James Bond movie and they were really extreme. Some people were like, I hated it. It is the worst James Bond I've ever seen. And then there were others who were like, this is the best James Bond movie that has ever been made. And, yeah. you know, like it was really it was really extreme. There was nobody in the middle. And I feel like people, at
1: least, there's for, something- for me,
3: yeah, for me as a creator, I'm always like, great. I mean, whenever you can hit a nerve like that and people love it or hate it, they're talking about your, your they're talking about your your movie, which is the greatest thing you want, you know.
1: Well, there's one very specific reason why a lot of people didn't like it, and I won't spoil it.
3: Yeah, we can't spoil it. <laughs> Definitely can't spoil it.
1: I mean, everybody. Knows, I mean, everybody knows, but I don't know if if you, if you guys uh, participating here know. So I'm not going to mention it. We we won't spoil it.
3: But, okay. So I want to move to, from your legal perspective with the above the line cr- creatives, mistakes that you see that get made because, you know, part of your job is like creating these contracts that are going to support everybody. And then also I'm, I'm assuming part of your job is doing cleanup on stuff that was done wrong. So talk to us about mistakes that you see that you think that above the line folks should avoid.
1: Well, that's a tough one because You know, these agreements that we do are very highly sort of, they work within very narrow ranges. You know what I mean? They're kind of all the same. And there's a specific reason for that. And that's the studios want to control everything, right? So you are an employee, unless you're a final cut person, you're not going to have final creative say. So, you know, you're you're just an employee, really. And, uh, uh, you know, and there's no way to really get around that uh, unless you're going to independently finance. And by the way, the independent model, which, you know, I'm happy to talk about as well, is still going on. Even with all the streamers and everything, people are still making independent movies the old fashioned way.
3: I'm so glad to hear that. Where do you see financing coming from for those?
1: Uh, Financing for independent movies, I'll go over real briefly, is kind of uh, usually the same model. So it's a combination of soft money. Do you guys know what that is?
3: Soft- I do, but maybe you want to share with people yeah. who don't know
1: what, what it is. Soft money is free money. <laughs> <That> you, <laughs> that you might have heard that if you shoot in certain locations, they give you tax rebates. They give you subsidies. Every jurisdiction is different in terms of the program that they have. So if you shoot in New Mexico, if you shoot in Louisiana, Georgia, Romania. Even Chicago now Canada. has them. Chicago, I've heard about that. So they all have different programs where they give you they essentially free money. They, In order to attract and, and boost the economy of that location, they will give you money towards your budget in order to attract you to, to the, shoot. Care. The Irish
3: so, tax incentives are amazing. It's like 34% or something.
1: Yeah. It can range from, you know, 15 to, I mean, I've heard of 50%, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, With many, many, many caveats, there were some very bad experiences in Puerto Rico, which I won't get into right now, but they were even 50%. So in other words, half your budget's covered and all you got to do is shoot in Puerto Rico. So, um, you know, all the line producers are very savvy in terms of, uh, you know, because it changes every year, right? They vote. Here's a new program. Oh, let's shoot in Colorado. Uh, or, you know, one phases out, so we can't shoot in New Mexico anymore or whatever. So the line producers have to be up on how that is changing. And uh, you can find that online. Uh, I think at uh, the uh, payroll company, what's it called? Um, I think they they give you a, a maps, maps, and you can click on it and find out what programs they have. Uh, not, I, I can't remember. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute, the, hmm. the name of the company. But uh, so... Um, that's a big, that's the first chunk. So the production will go wherever the money is, but also you have to have locations that are, you know, conducive to what you're shooting, right? You can't shoot a mountain climbing uh, uh, in snow in Hawaii, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, But within that constraint, you will go where you get the most money and that's conducive to your script. So that's, that, 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 that's why movies are shot all over the world. And that's why, for example, and you might've heard Georgia, so many shows and movies are shot in Georgia because they have an attractive program.
3: That's really cool. And it's been growing like crazy. I mean, they, they call Atlanta, the new LA. And I know a lot of people who are working there and writing there and everything. And it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, it comes and goes. You know, Louisiana was the big one a couple of years ago, right? Uh, everybody was shooting in Baton Rouge and uh, and New Orleans. That's where we shot Bill and Ted, uh, the last Bill and Ted movie down in the. Oh, Orleans. did
3: you do three with with Solomon? Yes. Oh, amazing! Well,
1: not only did I do. I'm the- a big
3: I'm a big Ed fan.
1: Uh, he's terrific. Not only did I do do all the legal work for that for three years, I actually invested my own money in it, and <laughs> it didn't do well. The movie's good, by the way.
3: I know, we, we saw it all together. We love Bill and Ted.
1: We got slammed by the coronavirus and bad distribution by MGM, that, that dual hit. Um, so uh, it was not very successful. I mean, it wasn't a disaster, but surprisingly because the movie was good. Like if you, anybody saw that Coming to America movie, it is unwatchable and it did monster business. So, and Bill and Ted is good and didn't do as well. So
3: Ted was phenomenal. And up until like the release, Ed Solomon, if you guys aren't following him on Twitter, you should be. He was posting like the most, uh, the coolest like pages from the early scripts and sharing from his memorabilia for all the years of Bill and Ted. And they were doing videos together and all. And it was like, man, it was incredible. It was really cool.
1: Well, you know, Keanu was arguably the biggest star in the world. And he had a franchise that is beloved. So the movie should have done better, right? Keanu has uh, Matrix 4 and Wicks 4. Uh, John Wick coming out. So um, uh, anyway, so uh, so that's a big chunk of the financing. Yeah. pull it a third, which is pretty good, right? So already that's you're making a movie, right? So how does the rest um, uh, Come about. So, generally, most of the time, you'll do some, uh, have a foreign sales company. You guys all know what that is, right? A company that sort of sells to the different territories throughout the world. The the pre sales. Pre sales. And they'll make a list of every territory in the world and they'll have ask and take or mid level and high. Depending on the company, they have different uh, nomenclature they like to use. Ask and take means this is what we'd like to get. That's what we ask for. Take is what we're willing to take, at least this amount. So, from those numbers, and then at the bottom is a number. So, all the world in terms of uh, estimates is what it's called. And at the bottom is a number, $3 million, it all adds up to. So, you can actually take that to the bank or an investor and get money based on those estimates. Generally, you'll want to sell a few territories, um, it, it, you know. And by the way, that that whole business is driven by cast. So in other words, right. Rob Nero is worth X in France, mm-hmm. like $100,000, let's say, for in France.
3: They're kind of like measuring how big of an audience they think is going to show up for him because of that movie, right?
1: Right. So, you know, ideally, you know, it, that's why independent movies, you want to get as many well-known cast members in there because that will drive your foreign estimates and your foreign sales, which will allow you to have enough money to make the movie.
3: And that's talent. And do directors count in that as well with how big of a draw they think the directors will have? Is it mostly just the actors?
1: Yes, but less. Much less. 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 Mm. Yeah, because the average consumer doesn't know from a director. I mean, they know Spielberg, right? But right. they don't even know Paul Thomas Anderson. Guys, who we household names that we know. Right. Midwest, they don't know from Paul Thomas Anderson. I, I, I would hazard a guess, except for the real filmies, you know, the people really into film. So then, you know, you make a few sales. And then the, those monies are due on delivery if you make a sale. So you need to get a loan, a bank loan or a loan from an individual to, uh, and they'll discount the amount of that, um, of the uh, the amount of the sale, and give you that money to make your movie. So that's another check, let's call that a third. So that whole foreign sales game, largely driven by cast names. The last third is really equity, which means some wealthy individual or company writing a check, taking a risk, and investing in the movie. And that's how independent movies are are financed. That formula pretty much is is still, even with all the streaming, all the changes in the industry, that's kind of still the basic way that independent films get made.
3: I have a bunch of producer friends who use that formula, rinse, repeat, and they go make movies in Slovenia or wherever (laughs) they're finding those awesome tax incentives.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Bulgaria... Uh, Romania moving in South Africa right now, which is appealing in some ways. Um, So, and by the way, the formula is always the same for those investors. It's not something that varies investors in that equity investor piece, right? The risk money will get 120% of their money back. In other words, their money back out of first money plus a 20% premium plus 50% of the profits. So 50% is divided among Writers, producers, directors, actors, right? The creative team. And 50% goes to the financiers on a pro rata basis, meaning because because often you don't have one investor, right? Let's say you have three million dollars, that final third. So maybe three people each giving a million, they'll each get a third of that 50% investor pool. Understand? Yeah.
3: And there's the math. We were doing that when I was working with Bill Johnson at Inferno. We were coming in, like doing stuff with New Line, like you were. Which which of the movies were you on with us at Inferno?
1: Oh, I I don't remember. Now I worked on several uh, Inferno movies. I don't know which ones. I came
3: in with, with Just Friends. Uh, it was the first just movie ever, first movie I ever put notes in on. And, you know, it was Ryan Reynolds breaking out the gate and Anna Faris just killing it. She's so funny. It was a blast.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I worked on Just Friends, did a lot of work on Just Friends. And also, I have to say, very good movie, very funny, did not perform, underperformed, I think.
3: It uh, underperformed in the U.S., but it, it killed it in the U.K. It was like number one in the U.K. for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They loved it over there.
1: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> with the cast, it should have been, you know, a big franchise movie, but it was quite a good one.
3: It was, it was. So let's talk, some of the questions that came in earlier as I was talking to people coming into this call with you, Philip, were about, we're from writers who are excited to go write stories based on um, people who are still alive today, celebrities maybe in the past. So will you talk to us about what writers need to know about locking up life rights or when it's in public domain as they decide to go after these individuals and stories for their projects?
1: That is an interesting and difficult question because it's a little bit all over the place. Like it's kind of out of favor now to get life story rights, believe it or not. Because like Warner Brothers, one of the major, major you know, television companies and film companies, no longer gets life story rights. They think they don't need them. So you have to be careful about different types of claim, claims. There's a defamation, which means you malign someone with untrue facts. And if someone's dead, you cannot defame. Defamation is only for living people. Once they die, you can say anything you want about them. <laughs> and then there are privacy claims, uh, right of publicity claims. They vary by state. So, in terms of publicity, you have to be careful because every state has different rules, including dead people. Some go 50 years after the person dies, or sometimes it dies, uh, the right of publicity dies upon death, and sometimes it goes on. So, you have to know where the person was domiciled, in other words, their residence when they died. And by the way, anybody can just Google this stuff. You know, if you say, okay, that guy died in Rhode Island, you Google um, uh, right of publicity. Uh, after post-mortem right of publicity, Rhode Island, you get all the information right there. So you don't even need an attorney to uh, do those preliminary um, uh, questions. But I would sort of, I mean, maybe other attorneys might have a different opinion, but I would kind of not worry about that stuff in the early stages. You're writing a spec script about someone living or dead. You know, I think that's something more to worry about when you've got a company on the hook. Or you're starting to raise financing when you really want to send it to a lawyer to be vetted to see defamation, right of publicity, um, uh, other other uh, life rights. Um, so I would say don't spend a huge amount. Of, you know, write what you like, what you want to write, and kind of sort it out later. I think otherwise you just get paralyzed. That's my opinion. Others might disagree with that.
3: Okay. I mean, that's interesting. I I think your opinion is valuable. Let's talk about shopping agreements versus options. Uh, know someone who is a client who's a director who got really excited about a script recently the writer's unknown and he said i want to option it and he made them a deal and they turned it down because they felt like they could sell the screenplay outright somewhere else so talk to us about the difference between those shopping agreements options and what it takes to really truly sell the screenplay straight out
1: okay so there's if you're a producer and you want to control a piece of material that could be an article a book or a screenplay, or any, anything else, podcast, whatever it is, there are two ways to go about it. A shopping agreement or an option purchase agreement. Now, there are pluses and minuses in each of those. Now, a shopping agreement gives the producer the right to shop the project exclusively, right? It would be exclusive right to shop for a period of time, which might be 60 days, 90 days, a year. That's subject to negotiation. But usually, no money changes hands under a shopping agreement. I've seen differences. You know, there's been uh, exceptions to that. Sometimes you pay a little bit, a $1,000. Sometimes you pay more. But typically, a shopping agreement would be no money changes hands. So that's one advantage. The second advantage of a shopping agreement is it's down and dirty and fast. Like, you could turn around a shopping agreement in a couple of days and control that material. You don't own it. You can control it. In other words, no one else... Can take it away from you. You have the exclusive right to shop it. And once you shop it, you negotiate your deal as a producer, and the writer or owner of the intellectual property will negotiate their deal with that buyer. Right? So it's quick, it's easy, and generally it's free. Those are the advantages of shopping. Well, what are the disadvantages? Well, you don't really own or control the material right? You don't negotiate a full-blown. Now, negotiating a full-blown option purchase agreement is a long, complicated, and expensive process because not only do you have to pay for the option, you have to pay an attorney, you know, several thousand dollars to do that for you because and it takes months. I mean, you can do it in a week or two, but typically months go by on every option. We do Dozens and dozens of option purchase agreements every year, and they take months to get done. (coughs) But what's the advantage? That I know that I control that material. I know that that writer is going to receive, let's say, $200,000 as a purchase price, 2% of the profits, whatever, 5% of the profits, and everything else has been laid out. Sequels, remakes, insurance obligations, indemnity, representation, warranty. It's a long agreement. But once you have it in place, you have much more security as a producer. Because I'll tell you a scenario that rarely comes up, but could. Let's say you have a shopping agreement and the producer works really, really hard to set it up. And lo and behold, they get Lionsgate to want to, you know, develop it or, or, or produce it. You hit the lottery, right? You got a deal, studio deal. So you say, okay, great. You start to engage in negotiation. You as the producer and the owner as the IP, intellectual property owner. Well, what if the owner says, I want a million dollars. This is a precious screenplay. Never sold anything before in her life. Wants a million dollars. I'm not gonna settle for less. It might blow up the deal. Right. Uh, all that work gone to nothing. Now, I've I've rarely seen it. Most people want to deal. If <laughs> wants to pay you fifty thousand dollars, and that's all they'll pay. And you're a first timer. You're generally going to take it. So it doesn't come up often. But you're at the whim of the uh, owner if you're the producer, right? So uh, that's the pluses and minuses. Now, if you're a um, intellectual property owner, you wrote the screenplay or something. You kind of prefer a shop, you know, well, you might prefer a shopping agreement, even though you don't get any money, typically, you still own your material. And if there's a bidding war, right, or if it becomes a hot property, you can get a lot of money for it, as opposed to having optioned it early.
3: And and then that price is locked in, is what you're saying.
1: That's exactly right. So that's the pluses and minuses. I don't know if that's clear.
3: Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, in an option agreement, there's the money that, like, say, a producer will spend on the option, but the, the fee that the writer will get for the screenplay is also in that option agreement. And both are both are there, right? The option fee plus the fee that the writer gets for the purchase, purchase of purchase. the
1: script. Purchase, yeah. purchase yeah. price, pension compensation, all of that is laid out. Everything that happens with sequels, uh, subsequent productions, spinoffs. All of this is taken care of in an option agreement, so um, you know there's less work has to be done later.
3: So, what, so how's it different with TV?
1: Uh, in terms of option purchase and shopping agreements, it's yeah, because no
3: it's going to be a series, and you know those those uh, deals, of course, I know they change, especially as the there are more and more seasons, right? The cast gets more and more money as the seasons go on, etc. So, can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between those?
1: Yes. Well, uh, it doesn't change what I said. There's an option purchase and a shopping agreement. However, the agreements look quite different because if you're going to sell your work as a TV series, generally, you're going to want to be an executive producer of that TV show. Right? Now, some studios will never consider that. Some will give you a lesser credit, consultant credit, consulting producer, co-executive producer. But if you're the owner of an IP... And we do this all day long. We want you to be an executive producer. It's one of the threshold things. And then you make a fee per episode. You may or may not be involved in the production. Depends right. on who the people are, right? If the showrunner, which, you know, the that's the executive producer that runs the show, wants you to be involved, you'll be involved. If they have no interest in you, you'll be, you know, less or not involved. Um, so, uh, the executive producer component is kind of the biggest difference between negotiating, a a TV deal and a film deal. Uh, although typically when we do film deals now, we also try to get that executive producer fee and credit in there as well. Um, so then you have to negotiate, uh, uh, how long you're locked as executive producer. You want to be locked for life, which you can typically get as an IP owner.
3: What does that mean Uh, locked?
1: Lock for life means that you get your executive producer credit and your executive producer fee for the life of the show, no matter how long it runs. Mm-hmm. Because if you're hired as an executive producer on a show, generally you're only locked for two years, right? You know, or one and one, they call it the Warner lock. I, I don't think, I, I don't want to get too granular right now, unless anybody's interested in that. But it, it differs.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm definitely learning a lot. I know less about TV and more about features because that was like where I cut my teeth. But it seems like TV is only growing and expanding. And especially with, you know, streamers in play, they want all all these series orders that are coming in. Um, Let's talk about the back end and who gets a back end and what's happened with the rise of streaming with that.
1: Well, that's an interesting question. The back end, meaning the contingent compensation, meaning the share of profits that the person gets. Uh, There are a couple areas of profits. One is residuals, which are guild mandated payments. You guys have heard about residuals, like the WGA, the The Green envelopes. Is it green? I didn't know. Yeah, the
3: WGA comes in a green envelope, your residuals
1: (laughs) do. Easy to steal, I would think. Um, And SAG all have pay residuals to their members, right? which means that when there's distribution in different media, theatrical, television, whatever it is, and, and revenue comes in, they have to make certain payments. So you get checks. That's a nice a form of profits for the creative person. The other thing you get is condition compensation that you negotiate with the producer. That's non-negotiable. That's set forth in the WGA basic agreement. How much the residuals are. In addition, by the way, you get pension health and welfare, which yeah. is 22% or 21 and a half or 22%. Of, so, in other words, if you're hired to write a screenplay and they pay you 100000 they have to pay 22% uh, percent on top of that for your pension health and welfare to the guild. So, anyway, profits, uh, writers typically get 5% of profits, uh, directors get 5 to 10% of profits um uh producers get whatever's kind of left over um depends if it's film or television and uh is i mean that because we, producers
3: are mostly getting their fees on the front end
1: No because they, they no not really because they control the pot so when they give away the pieces of the pot whatever's left is kind of remains with them right on a film Okay so you can be left with 2% you can be left with 15% But, you know, usually you give away because the director gets a share, the writers get a share, the actors get a share. Now, that has changed now with the streamers who don't pay profits. They don't want to share in that because they control the um, distribution. If you make a movie for Netflix, it's only going to be on Netflix. It's not going to have that windowed. Uh, release like it's in theaters for ninety days. Then it's on pay television. Then it's on free television. Then it's on home video. That was the old model. Right now it's it's on Netflix. End of story.
3: And Netflix isn't pushing much out for theatrical unless they think it's going to be an Oscar contender.
1: Right, they, they you know they're starting to buy theaters. Uh, you know the streamers so they can release for for you know they love those awards because uh, that gives them prestige and allow, you know, attracts filmmakers and gives them an ego boost. But anyway, so the streamers don't pay profits to all those participants, but what they do is they pay a premium up front. So let's say um, the above the line fees are $3 million. They might pay another $3 million, which will be divided among the profit participants. So in other words, you get your money up front more than your compensation. However, If it's a big hit, you don't get that showering of money, and so a lot of people complain about that because you know Seinfeld, uh, you know, uh, made hundreds of millions of dollars from the success of that show, and now which maybe if you had made the show, maybe you'd get half a million or whatever, right, Uh, as a premium. So it's up to the sort of uh, personality of the person whether you'd rather have a guaranteed smaller amount or roll the dice. For the big, big win.
3: That's interesting. It mean, shows like Golden Girls that have been in syndication forever. I mean, the creators still going to be getting residuals from a show like that, right?
1: Oh, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. I know. It's not- but, uh,
1: Jerry Seinfeld, to, to use that example, you know, they just sold to Netflix, right? The whole series for how many? 500 million? I mean, just like mind-boggling figure. I don't even know how much just a mind-boggling figure. Yeah. And you know that Jerry and uh, um, Larry... Made a big chunk of that.
3: Yeah, so it's so interesting. And the deals can really change depending on the prestige and power of the creator, right? And their cachet coming into that kind of deal. Because obviously, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is going to get a lot more money than somebody who's lesser known.
1: Well, Jerry's getting money from what he negotiated way, way, way back when. He's still
3: getting money from from the early negotiations on top of.
1: I mean, he gets residuals too, but. Doesn't suck. That profit said he negotiated way, way, way back when that movie, when that show was the eighties or whatever.
3: Okay. I want to ask you a question that comes out of, um, you know, me having worked for and spent a lot of wonderful time with Gary Shanling, who I really miss. And Gary and I would talk about his show, especially Larry Sanders, which he was off of for a couple of years when I was with him kind of in the early aughts. And he talked with great pride that he owned his show. It was on HBO, but he owned the show. For people who don't know what that is, what does that mean, Phil?
1: Well, yeah, so there's a couple different ways you can produce a show. One is a production deal where, let's say, an HBO will finance the production and own everything, and you'll get a share of profits, which at HBO means nothing. Their profits definition is really terrible. Or you can produce it yourself and license it. So in other words, we do a lot of deals with the Duplass brothers like that, where they license shows to HBO or Netflix and they keep, they might sell, here's North American rights for 20 years or whatever, Um, but they keep ownership of the show. So when it's sold in other territories, uh, at the end of the term, they get it back. So uh, potentially they can make more money, but of course there's risks involved as well, as well as a lot of headaches in producing, you know, and financing a show.
3: I was just going to say that means they're responsible for the financing, right? Correct. Yeah. And then HBO would be doing like the distribution <clears throat> of something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be really expensive. Yeah. I'm, you know, I want, I want to talk to you about what happened on in New Mexico on the Rust uh, filming and that tragedy and your perspective on that from the legal standpoint of everything that went down.
1: I can give you my personal viewpoint. <clears throat> I wouldn't call it legal.
3: Do I'll take point a personal viewpoint.
1: Yeah. Which is that if an armorer or, or the first AD hands you a gun and says it's cold or, or safe or whatever, as an actor, I would assume it was. And if I pulled that trigger, I would assume nothing would happen. So I, I know Alex getting a lot of heat. Um, they're saying, I wonder if he would have double checked it if he put it to his own head. Well, who knows? But... You know, you have to trust that a gun is going to be safe that the crew gives you. Uh, Now, I understand that they had an AD that had other problems regarding firearms in the past. And on low budget movies, you try to save money where you can. They got the cheaper armorer, right? It was the guy in charge of the firearms. So they're still investigating. So who knows what happened, how that live round got in there. Someone made a very, very bad error or was very careless. Uh, We don't know who that is yet. So that's my viewpoint. It's also my legal viewpoint. I don't know where you can assign responsibility. They're saying there should be no live rounds on a set. Well, I'm not sure that's the case either. Um, You know, I think that There should be safeguards. But by the way, how often does this happen? The last time it happened was Brandon Lee, right? That was 20 years ago. It's not like it's happening all the time. You know, people are, stunt people are getting paralyzed or killed doing stunts more often than people are getting shot by negligent armorers. So let's keep it in perspective. Um, So, you know, I guess it's something you probably don't want to cut corners on, anything that's going to, you know be dangerous to people on the set
3: okay let's talk for a second i'll ask you one last question if that's okay and we'll go to the q a as i know everyone has questions that they want to ask you and one of my questions is really about like um negotiation and how you advise your uh, clients around negotiation and their whether or not they're informed Or if they lead the charge on negotiating and they tell you what they want, what do you see and what do you recommend with above-the-line creatives who are working with entertainment attorneys?
1: I like to work closely personally with the talent and let them know, explain to them what different things mean, and, you know, sort of fill them in every step of the way. Other attorneys don't. They just do the deal. Here, sign it. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I just like it to be more of a collaborative process. You know, what are your concerns? Let me explain to you how the industry works. What these provisions mean that's just me that's the way i enjoy working um in terms of you know hopefully you hire someone good that you can rely on um so you don't have to negotiate your deal yourself or worry about that the only agreement by the way that we allow clients producing clients to take care of is a shopping agreement right it's just fill in the blanks this party that party in 12 months or three months or whatever the term is um otherwise you need an attorney to negotiate contracts you shouldn't be thinking about doing on the. There's been a lot of instances where talent has signed contracts that bit them in the in the butt later mm-hmm. on, that they regretted because it tied them up for things, for their project, for their time, in ways that they are not happy about being tied up because they didn't have the you know the advice of a, of counsel.
3: How do you recommend uh, people find the right entertainment attorney for them?
1: It's a good question. Um well, I think you ask around and find out if uh other talent have good experience with their attorney, right? Um uh there are, you can do research online. Uh that's going to be of limited effect probably. It's not that much information you can find out about it. But you can find out where they went, you know, on LinkedIn, where they went to school, what firms they were with what, what companies to see if they've got, you know, good credentials. But I think mostly the recommendation of someone you trust is probably the best way.
3: Yeah, that's great. That's a great, that's a great uh, suggestion. And I, I agree. All right. So we're going to go to Q and A. Sophie, you've got a question for Phil. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Say hi.
0: Hello. How do you feel? Phil, thank you for being here. Hi, Sophie. So uh, I have more of a general question as related to attachment agreements, um, as far as uh, talent, um, because I'm working on a screenplay that I'm hoping to produce myself. And there's a, eventually a place where I'm going to have to approach talent. And how do, I, how do the agreements work? Are there timeframes on them or anything? Are they standard? Well, are you, are you saying attachment for an
1: actor? Is that what you're referring to?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's very, very tough. Because I think you want to be careful early on in a project's life to attach elements that you may want to get rid of later. Because what if you attach an actor and a better actor comes along later and you're stuck with the old act have to pay them off or whatever. So I think, so if you're going to attach a name actor, someone who's going to drive getting the project set up or financed, um, that's not a bad thing, but it's also an impossible thing. I hate to say it. It's just, nobody wants to have their name used to raise financing. Without, you know, without their, uh, you know, I would say if you want to make a, a, a star, for example, your producing partner, well, then they might want to attach themselves to the project. But short of that, why would any star want you to use their name to try to raise financing and, and on their back? Um, so I think that's real tough to do uh, until you can, like, it's very hard to attach an actor unless you're making what they call a pay or play offer. With a firm commitment, pay or play just means guaranteed compensation. They get the money no matter what, even if the movie doesn't get made. So until you're willing to make a pay or play offer and have the backing of someone who can back up pay-or-play offers, right? Because you're saying to the agent, oh, it's a pay or play offer. Well, the agent's going to go, okay, where's the proof of your funds? Uh, you know, you have a, maybe a credibility issue as opposed to, oh, I got this billionaire back in the pay or play offer. So until you're making a pay or play offer with a firm start date, it's very hard to attach a name uh, unless you're going to be producing with that person. You know, a lot of the actors are producers now. Uh, you know, Reese Witherspoon sold her company for, I mean, I, I it, it's like shocking to even say it for million. Um, That's like mind-boggling some. So obviously, you know, um, Drew Barrymore, there are many active uh, acting producers that have active production companies. Uh, uh, You know, most of the top actors are now doing that because it gives them some control over their destiny, right? They're not, you know, just someone for hire by a producer. Uh, They're actually controlling how the project's being set up, produced, who's the director. So anyway, my answer is that
0: uh, I don't think you can. Okay. No, this is still great information because you've given me a lot more direction. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And as I said, if you want an actor, attach him as
1: a producing partner, and then maybe you get him attached. That's what I'm looking at.
3: When I was with an Inferno, we saw a lot of projects come through where the attachments changed, you know, and, and that happens too, where you you get a project that you're really interested in with those attachments, and then they, they change, maybe even several times. So
1: that happened. I don't
3: know if people realize that that happens is is what I'm saying, unless you're kind of inside the business, like as a development exec or agent or feel like where you are, where you're like, oh, well, you know, the movie was going to be made with this person. Now it's going to be made with this person because payer plays come in, they get in production on something else, and then they'll they'll find an, another talent to be in your project. Right. Right. That's Rosalie, true. go ahead and unmute yourself. Say hi to Phil. Hi,
4: Phil. Hi. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, I have a actually very specific question uh, about what I'm working on. Um, I'm just trying to see like ahead what would be actually possible and uh, just what to expect, even if you might not be able to give me a, you know, clear, clear answer, but I'm working on a TV series and I've always wondered as someone that hasn't done, um, other projects before, no credit credentials or anything, um, what to expect if, um, I get my, um, my project picked up one day um what to expect as a writer and also as someone that wants to produce it wants to be there obviously uh creatively um i was an actor for a long time so it's inspired um from my story so at first obviously i wanted to uh try to be the main actor very very quickly um i realized that it might not be possible but uh in the meantime i'm still hoping um being able to maybe direct a couple episodes if possible in the first season uh but be there creatively and and and, yeah maybe on the production side uh, something like that uh i was wondering what to expect financially and and also like what kind of deal you
1: know is possible for someone like me okay well there's a lot of aspects to those <laughs> to that question. So first of all, uh you've written a pilot script and a bible for a TV yeah. series, is that accurate? Yes. Okay, everybody knows what a bible is. Yeah. So, uh okay, so you're trying to shop this pilot script and bible. Uh how much control are you going to have? How much involvement? How uh, is it possible you were you will be able to write some episodes and star in it? Uh those are very difficult questions to answer because, you know, it would be easier if you were producing an independent film Yes, and you managed to raise the financing, put together the soft money. Then you kind of control it and you say, OK, look, I don't have huge credits as an actor, but if I can bring De Niro in as my co-star, I could star in this thing. Right. So there's there's ways that you can kind of maneuver that. Now you're talking about television now, which is a lot harder because you can't do it independently. I mean, it's not, it's occasionally done, but generally you're going to be talking to a studio and they're going to be the ultimate arbiters and they're going to want name people um, usually and, you know, take over control so how can you protect yourself to get as much control as possible under a difficult scenario? That's your question, right? Yeah. Well, I think the answer is, and this is not an easy answer by any means, is if you get a showrunner involved, right? Cause you're not a you're not a network approved showrunner. Absolutely. And so they're going to want one of those to make sure that the scripts are delivered in time, the episodes are delivered in time and all that controlling the production, everything like. That. You know, so since you're not network approved showrunner, there will have to be a network approved showrunner. So either you sell it, set it up at a studio, and they bring on a showrunner they like, or you come into the project, you, you, um, you know, shop the project with a showrunner attached. Yeah. How does that protect you? Well, if the showrunner is likes you and you know the showrunner, and they're going to protect you while well, you're way ahead of the game, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can get a showrunner, but be careful because there's showrunners that are not in demand that won't enhance the project much when you're trying to shop it. And the the showrunners that do enhance projects and make it easier for you to shop it are way in demand. That's why I say it's a difficult answer, right? Yeah. yeah. But the way to protect your position is if you get a sympathetic, friendly, showrunner attached number one it'll make it a hundred times more easy to sell it number two your interests will be protected right because they like you and, and want your involvement presumably so they will give you episodes to write will will be happy with you to be an executive producer and be working alongside them in the writer's room on the episodes and things like that so i would say um the best way to protect your position would be to try to get a showrunner involved, and not just any showrunner, just to repeat, a showrunner that will enhance the ability for you to sell the project, which I say is no easy task by any means, because not only are they busy and in demand, but they have their own stuff. Yeah. They created their own shows. They they're, they're created by credit is so essential in television, right? Yeah. The, and who gets it created by credit? The person that writes the story of the pilot, the story of the pilot, not the screenplay of the pilot, the story of the pilot, which is usually the screenplay too, but the, the created by credit is given to the person who wrote the story of the pilot. Right. Now, if you wrote the pilot, I did. That means they're not gonna get the created by credit, which means less incentive on top of everything that I said, the difficulty even less incentive for them to come aboard your project. Now you could say, I'll share my story by credit. Okay. But if they created a project, they get all of it. Mm. You're saying, take half of it. I'm just saying these are challenges to get to do. But if, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So I would say the best way to protect your position is to bring on a sympathetic showrunner, which is a very, very hard task, but no more difficult than selling a show without a showrunner. So I would say, try, you know, Try to find someone who might be sympathetic to your project that might like it. Try to get them on board. Now, in terms of what your deal would look like, well, it's very hard to say, but I can yes. give you some parameters. Okay. There would be a purchase of your screenplay, which could be between $100,000 and $300,000 to purchase the rights. Then there'd be a royalty Per episode of between two and four thousand dollars, I know there's a little bit of a range there, but it depends how hot if there's a bidding war, you know, or just one buyer, two to four thousand dollars an episode, and then as I said, an executive producer fee, which could range between five and twenty thousand for a newcomer. You're probably not going to get more than twenty thousand dollars per episode, which okay. is cheap money, and you might get as little as five, which is kind of the walkaway money, five thousand per episode. Yeah. So those, and, and you know, uh, a few points of the back end uh, as well. Uh, and then, you know, other aspects of the deal. But th- those are the key elements. Does that answer your question?
4: Yeah, yeah. I have 10 more. So I'm not-
3: <laughs> but yes, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. Oh, it's fabulous. Thanks so much for the question, Rosalie. And we're going to go to Julie. Julie, go ahead and unmute yourself. Say hi to Phil.
5: All right. Thanks. Hi, Phil. Thanks for being here and sharing your wisdom. It's really great. I'm really new to this whole industry. So the legal part is like the biggest question marks. Um, I have two questions. One is kind of similar to Rosalie's, but for feature films. Um, I mean, I know like once you sell it if it's to like a studio, they can do whatever they want. They can rewrite it. Um, are there like are there ways as a writer to kind of try to protect create, like any kind of control, right? Whether it's asking
1: for the first rewrite There are ways you can protect yourself. The first way is if you're a member of the Writers Guild of America, you get the first opportunity to write to do the rewrite. That's also something you can negotiate into your deal if you have enough leverage so that you get the first rewrite. After that, it's kind of anything goes and they can bring in others. Now, you can always say if another writer is brought in, I'm not going to sell it. And you may not have the opportunity to make your movie, or you may. I mean, like uh, uh, Shawshank Redemption, Rocky. These are examples where the writers didn't want to give up their creative control. And even though they both got multi-million dollar offers to sell their screenplay, they refused to do it. Rocky wanted, you know, Stallone wanted to star in Rocky. And Shawshank, uh, whatever his name, what's it? Greenfield, Green Hut, whatever his name is, wanted to direct it, even though he didn't have the track record. So if he got the guts <laughs> to hold out, um, then uh, uh, you know maybe, you, and that you got a ph- phenomenal hot screenplay. Well, then you can make your demands, but that's rare. I'm not. I'm not recommending that. You know, I think. Um, try to negotiate as good a deal as you can. You got to pay some dues in the beginning. You're not going to have as much control, but you know, sell your screenplay. Hopefully it's a good movie and that'll elevate you to the next level where you might have a little more control to even direct your picture. Right.
5: Right. And is that something that an entertainment lawyer can help with, like knowing how much to push depending on who's, who the buyer is?
1: Yeah. We know how much to push and how much, when we know when to give and when to hold, uh, we have a lot of experience doing that. So yeah.
5: And, um, can I ask a second question? Of course. Okay. Um, so I am, one of my projects is adapting a novel and, um, it's a friend of mine who wrote it. She's self published. So she holds all the rights. Um, and she's given me her blessing, you know, go for it, do whatever you want when it comes time to sell it. I'm like, do I secure the rights from her? Does, is she involved as the writer of the adopted work? Like, what is that
1: like? The way you can do a shopping agreement or you can do a uh, option purchase agreement.
5: But like, will she get money as the writer of the novel?
1: Yes. Well, okay. it, Let's say you do just a shopping agreement and um, you know you go out there and set it up and then you do your deal as the writer of the screenplay and the yeah. writer of the book does their deal as the writer of the book. Then you'll each get your own. Option fee, you'll each get your own, purchase price, and all the other things that, that go with that as well. So right. that's not unusual. Okay.
4: And she
5: would have like her lawyer and I would have my lawyer. and yeah, You it's both like have your own lawyer. lawyer. Yeah, yeah
1: okay. absolutely. Yeah,
3: thanks. Is there any risk for Julie in doing this adaptation without an agreement in place with the novelist?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. So I guess what you have is an oral shopping agreement. Isn't that accurate, really? You say, yeah, you, you have my blessing. Go ahead and write the screenplay. The shopping agreement doesn't say that much. You know, It doesn't give you much protection. I mean, if you have an email saying uh, that, yeah, I give you the exclusive right for a year on this thing, that's pretty good protection she couldn't sell it anywhere else if she if there was an email existing giving you that right well i'm trying to avoid you having to incur legal fees and get all bogged down in legal stuff when you're just talking about creative endeavor things can go wrong but hopefully they won't if you trust this person you may you may want to you know it's probably bad advice i'm giving right now but <laughs> Uh, yeah, They want to trust them and just, you know, get an email. An email wouldn't be a bad idea, just confirming that you have the rights for a certain amount of time to try to shop this thing.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I think at this point, because this was only my second screenplay and I wasn't even sure I would want to do it. And I didn't want to get too locked in and or get her hopes up or anything if I wasn't going to complete it. But um, I feel like I, I'm at a point where it's going in a good direction. And so I, I, now it's probably a good time to do that. So yeah. Good,
1: good advice thank you my pleasure
3: yeah interesting that's great thanks to both of you um we're going to do one more question and it'll be Marsha. Marsha, you can go ahead and unmute yourself and say hi to Philip.
2: thank you hi mr Philip. thank you so much for your time and your expertise and mine are kind of similar uh, slightly similar subjects uh julie brought up number one between the option of because i'm working on a my first feature film um and um when you talk about the agreements um, contractually, is it really only for me to worry about the at the option level? Because then there's the whole side of the production selling it so to the studios. So if you could just kind of clarify that for me, that'd be great.
1: I didn't really follow the question. So you're writing a so, screen, an original screenplay, is that yes, right?
2: Yes. So when you oh. talked about the legalities, were you talking primarily when you talked about like um, the terms, the agreements, you know, the creative rights, are you talking primarily from when you're doing the the contract between, you know, the writer and the option for the production company or then the, then there's a level of the production company and the studios? Let me clarify. Okay, thank you.
1: Okay, so you're writing an original screenplay. Don't worry about any legalities whatsoever. Just write 120, is it a movie? Yes. 120 diamonds. That's all you need. Each page is a diamond, okay? Just write the best, you know, there's so much stuff being written out there. You've got, your screenplay can't be good. It's gotta be great. It's got to rise above the noise. So each page should be a gem. And all you have to do is put together 120 gems and you'll be a multimillionaire. So don't worry about the legal um, aspects. Just write a fantastic screenplay. Then, once you have a great screenplay, what do you do with it? Well, if you don't have a track record, you probably won't be able to get an agent to represent you, which would be ideal, right? But you probably, unless you wrote something so phenomenal that It knocks someone off their chair. Maybe you can get an agent then. But so uh, you need someone to shop this thing for you, right? What you need is a producer, and that producer could be a manager. So agents are licensed by the state to sell properties. Managers generally perform the same function, but they're not supposed to, but they do sell, you know, shopping. So managers are a little bit easier to get than... Agents, so if you and because managers are allowed to produce, agents aren't. So I would say, once you have the screenplay, you need a manager who's also a producer or a producer who has and, and and choose wisely because you want someone who has a track record, therefore has access to the different doors, the Netflixes and the studios, the Foxes and the Disneys of the world. Because if you just get someone who's eager. They might not have the access that you need to sell it. So try to go to someone with a track record. You you go to IMDB. You know about that, right? Yes. You look at their track record, say, wow, this person hasn't sold anything in 20 years. They probably won't sell anything now. Or, hey, this person set up three projects last year. That's pretty good, right? That's the kind of person you want. Someone who's got some recent credits in development in production at studios Someone that has access to the gatekeepers, right? So first write 120 gems, then find a producer or a manager. I mean, I could say try to find an agent as well, but it's just harder. So focus your search, I think, on producers and managers, someone who's going to shop and then give them a shopping agreement. They may insist on an option purchase agreement, which is not the end of the world, but it's a longer and more difficult process. And you're going to need an attorney at that point. But a shopping agreement, as I said, can be done down and dirty and quickly and, hope and give them however much time they need, usually three months, six months, to try to shop this thing to the town or even a year. And then uh, hope that they succeed. And once they succeed, then you negotiate your deal with the studio. They'll want further development probably, uh, unless you really have done 120 gems and it goes right into production. But generally, they're going to want further development. They're going to want to attach a director. They're going to want to do rewrites with either you or other writers, attach some stars, and then hopefully get into production. And then you're off and running. Excellent. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
3: Yay. And then you're off and running.
1: <laughs> hey, off and running. That's a good Yay. One to end it. Oh,
3: I love it. I love it. Philip, you're, you're so full of gems. and A lot more than 120. thank you so much for giving us your time on a saturday to answer our questions and chat with me i appreciate it so much thank you for being here
1: it was fun i enjoyed it so my pleasure
0: thank you for tuning in to this episode of entertainment business wisdom we invite you to subscribe like review and share it with your friends and colleagues Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at this is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R That's R, W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, "How to Pitch Anything in One Minute," at www entertainment business league.com. Thank you.